cosmology of, oh, it's there, I'm sorry, you know, I keep forgetting to do this. Let's look at the cosmology of the world we live in. Um, This helps me see things. All right, let's begin. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. And what we understood uh, is that God not only made the physical universe, but the spiritual universe as well. We know that when He made the heavens, He made the host of all the heavens as well. And uh, that would include the angels, and who would eventually also fall, and Lucifer. And He made the earth, and then He made man. The heavens, and what I want to make reference to here is the number of times in Scripture you'll see in Philippians 2.10, Revelation 5.3, and Revelation 5.13, the Bible refers to three areas of the physical universe. One is above the earth, right? The heavens, the earth, and all that is under the earth. And I found it interesting when when the Bible was making reference to that, that it was in these verses, Philippians 2.10 and Revelation 5.3, when it talks about the authority of Christ. Philippians 2.10 says that he's been given a name above every name, right? So that everything in heaven and earth and below the earth will call him Lord to the glory of the Father. Revelation says, Revelation 5 is the revelation of Jesus before the throne. And so that all who will worship him above the earth, in the heavens, in the earth, and below the earth. So I found it interesting that in the verses that talk about the exaltation and glory and power of Christ, it talks about all the regions or dimensions to the physical earth. And so let's take a quick look at those dimensions and see what the biblical worldview of where we live, what it looks like, okay? So we start with the heavens. And in Scripture, the heavens are divided up into three parts. The first part, and I had these separated, but for some reason, this doesn't want to do it. So um, the third heavens, if you will, is the place where the throne of God dwells. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, too. I knew a man, he's speaking of himself, that had a vision, went to the third heaven. That was the place where God was, all right? And it's called paradise. It's the place where God's throne is. And we know that that is the place where um, God's authority abides and dwells. Now, I don't know what dimension that's in. We know that there's a physical aspect to it, isn't there? Why Why would there be a physical aspect to it? Anybody think? Jesus. And he rose from the dead, and he is what? Flesh and bone. Flesh and bone, okay? Not flesh and blood. Flesh and bone, all right? Flesh and blood shall not inherit. So it's, he's flesh and bone, but he's physically rose from the dead. And what is being constructed there? Yeah, yeah, the new Jerusalem that shall come down. That is a physical entity. So isn't that kind of interesting? Now, I can't figure it out. I don't know what that means. But I don't know if it's in some realm or dimension or is it tucked away in some other part of the cosmos and it is approaching? I don't know. But it, it uh, has a, a physical dimension but a powerful spiritual plane where that is where the throne of God is, on the sides of the north. All right, and everything in Scripture points to the north in the sense that that's where 
the holiness of God is. So the third heavens, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, is the place where God dwells. The second heavens is basically the cosmos. And that's where we have all these little angels, okay? They're floating around. And the, the cosmos is basically the physical universe, all the way out to its ends and back again, wherever that is. We haven't even explored that, have we? We don't know how big or small or whatever it is. A lot of people think that because the universe is so vast, there must be other creatures living on other planets and all this kind of stuff. Uh, But what I see is as the universe being so vast is because that's what God had intended for us to uh, be involved with and move forward. When we come to the new heavens and the new earth and we have resurrected bodies, we're going to have a lot of places to go, right? I mean, he made it big for us. Right now, everything's focused on planet earth. Now, what we see here in the second heavens, Colossians 1.16 says, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created by him and for him. So he lists the spiritual realm. He lists the rankings of different angels. Remember last week that we talked about the sons of God and the morning star angels, the two different classifications of the cherubim, seraphim, and and those who were messenger angels and all this. If you weren't here, you can get the CD. But anyways, so now we've got all the thrones, powers, principalities, those angelic realm that operate in the second heavens, in the heavenlies. We know that they move around, and remember last week we saw after the flood, they created the council of heaven. Those who were stationed, and Deuteronomy 32.8 talked about how God divided and separated the places in the earth according to the sons of God, according to that heavenly realm. All right, so we see also in Daniel 9, when the angels came, there was an angel over uh, uh, Medo-Persia, and there was an angel guarding over Greece, and the angel of God had to war against them. So there was there is this angelic network around planet Earth in the second heavens. All right, and so then thirdly we see the first heavens, which is basically Earth's atmosphere, right there. Okay. And so we know what's around Earth's atmosphere and, and the, uh, the ozone and all that kind of good stuff. But we also know that those angels move in and out of the atmosphere from the second heavens into the Earth's realm, don't they? And uh, they wreak havoc and they do different things. And also good angels come and move, right? And they, we also saw that from the council of heaven that they went and reported to the very throne of God. You remember the book of Job? that it says the morning stars and and the sons of God reported to God, and Lucifer was with them. So we see that they have access and they move between the third heaven, second heaven, into the first heavens, and to planet Earth. So they have this access back and forth as angels. Now, the angels on the Earth are not physical bodies. They don't have the right, as humans do, who were given dominion and authority and power on the earth. So they move back and forth. Now, it says, interestingly enough, that Satan is, Ephesians 2, 2 says, he's the prince of the power of the air. 
And so what he has done is organized his troops, his host, his army, to set up a grid work around the world and his activities to try to accomplish and thwart the purpose and will of God around the earth. And he is called the prince of the power of the air because man fell. And because of the fall, he then uh, exercises authority through fallen man to accomplish his will in the earth. He's got to use fallen man because man has dominion over the, the works of God's hands. Psalm 8 tells us that. So the devil has to work through fallen man to accomplish his goals and to scheme and purpose for his goal to overthrow God's government and authority. What Satan would ultimately like to do, as we read in the Isaiah 14, you remember the five eyes, I want to ascend, I want to do this. Basically what he wants to do is make himself ruler of this world and ascend in power and authority to do that. Now, let's take a look at the earth realm. That's the heavens. Let's take a look at the earth. We, uh, as I just stated, man was given authority and dominion, but because of the fall, death had entered into the world. Sin entered, and because sin entered, now death came, right? Because the wages of sin is death. And so man would surely die the day he ate of that fruit, and he did. Spiritually disobeying God, he separated himself from God's Spirit and became self-conscious instead of God-conscious. Self-centered instead of God-centered. Man decided to do this. And the devil had helped, didn't he? He tempted Eve, and Adam went full board in rebellion against God and chose to eat that apple when God told him not to. And in that rebellion, he found himself fallen and now under the condemnation of sin and death. Right? All right. You with me so far, everybody? All right. All right. Now, we then talked about the, the flood. The fall and the flood did some pretty cataclysmic things to the cosmology of the earth. And biblical cosmology tells us that not only is this hierarchy of the angelic realm that had fallen, what percentage fell or went with Satan when he rebelled? One-third. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that one-third of the angels had left that realm and followed after Satan. And we know Satan tempted Adam and Eve. The fall came, and that changed the dynamic of planet Earth and the purpose and will of God. Then something else happened. It's the world that then was, Peter tells us. It was a different world then. And the angels, we looked at Genesis chapter 6, and we saw that there were a specific type of angel, as Peter says, that left their first estate or left their original uh, uh, created form and abode and came down and mingled uh, with the women of men. And so they created a hybrid. We talked about that last week. And in that, we saw that they had corrupted the human race by their seed to such a place that every thought and every intention of the human heart was desperately wicked and that they had become distorted in the DNA to where God had to rescue Noah and his family because they were the only ones left clean 
as the Hebrew puts it, or unpolluted. They had to rescue the human race so that God could save mankind. And they put Noah in the ark, didn't they? And God destroyed the earth. Now there's some interesting speculation with all of this because we see the earth was at that original creation was covered with a water canopy, let the waters of the deep separate from the waters of the earth. It created a vapor barrier around the earth that created a perfect atmosphere and a garden setting to where everything was grown so huge and so large. It was perfect for the dinosaurs and all the, fo- all the different animals and all that kind of activity. For man to live into the 900s and so forth without sickness, without disease. I mean, this, this was a perfect environment. And uh, just to throw a plug in there, we're going to have Grady McMurtry here in May, and he'll remind you all of that activity and talk scientifically about it. All right? I'm not that guy. So, uh, but something interesting happened in order for the waters to flood. It says that they broke through the plates of the earth, and it says it also rained. And scientists believe that the earth has actually shifted its axis 23 degrees. And that would explain for this great deluge to come and flood the earth. It's interesting as well that with that kind of a shift of the axis and God's punishment, if you'll remember, what did he do with those angels that left their first abode? He chained them into a place that in the English it says hell, but in the Greek it is a unique word called Tartarus. And many believe that that shift of the axis somehow shifted the the, uh, magnetic and polar activity of the earth that caused these angels to not escape but be bound into the earth by this shift. And they are then locked in to Tartarus. It says that they're locked there until when? Judgment. In the book of Revelation, it, you see that God releases the angels to loosen those, uh, the pit or the abyss, which is Tartarus, and Abaddon comes out and he is the, uh, the head of the armies of these demonic beasts that come forth out of Tartarus. All right? You know who believed in Tartarus? You know who believed in all that activity? Uh, Adolf Hitler. And the Nazis, they did a lot of research into the concept of these communicating with the angels in the angelic realm. They believed in a hollow earth. They sent uh, teams down to the South Pole because they believed that they could somehow have access with Tartarus and this activity. They were very much involved in space travel, trying to find a way for space travel and reaching the angelic realm and the demonic realm. Interesting stuff, right? Now, in those last days, wouldn't it be interesting, and aren't we, don't we see something setting up in our earth to where, it, could you imagine an invasion of beings coming to the planet? Would that be so far-fetched in today's media? What are most of the movies about? Exactly that. It seems like a setup to me, doesn't it? Right? And so you've got these things being released and moving into the earth, and many of the depictions of what aliens look like 
are very close to some of the descriptions of what the book of Revelation says and how they move. And so it's, it's an interesting setup. Okay, so again, biblically, in the cosmology, we have those angels from the flood, those two, two events, the fall and the flood, were key in the cosmology of where we are now in planet Earth. It changed the planet. And so uh, Noah then starts a, a new, if you will, race of mankind, uh, a, a new development of mankind growing again, all right? And what we saw is that those angels, I got them laying down over here. They're down at the bottom, see them? All right. Oh, that's Adam and Eve. Sorry, I didn't have any leaves for Eve. But what we have uh, here with those angels locked in Tartarus below the earth, now I don't know if it's literally under the ground, okay? There's been some silly things on YouTube, people who said the Russians who were drilling heard the cries of people in hell. Uh, any of you hear that? Any see that news report? Okay, that, that was bogus. That was not true. Um, but see, there's dimensions that we just really don't understand and, and know in the realm. So I don't know if they're literally under the ground or soil, but there's something under the earth the Bible speaks of. And I don't know what that is. Maybe you do. But uh, anyways, now what we then find is that possibly, there's two views on this, that this is where the demons come. Those offspring of the fallen angels and human women created what we're called in Genesis 6, the Nephilim, all right? The strange flesh. And uh, that word can be translated giants. And we do see giants, that same word used later. David fought a giant and there were giants in Canaan and all that. I don't believe, I think it's just the use of the same word. I don't believe that it's the same uh, entities because the flood had destroyed them and God had punished them. But they became bodiless spirits. The Nephilim, who were mighty and great of that day, now become unclean spirits or demons. They're what roams the earth now and uh, doing the bidding of Satan and working in cohort with him. That's one theory. The other theory is that the demons are simply fallen angels that work on the earth with the devil. Um, and so you get to pick and figure out which it could be. I think more evidence leads towards the Nephilim, that these disembodied spirits that move and flow, because they're always seeking a body to inhabit. Right? We're not all, the, the angels are not all after that. Look at uh, Ephesians 6.12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. Then he goes on, he says this in Matthew 12.43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, that's dry places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my what? house from which i came and when it comes it finds the house empty swept and put in order then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself they enter and dwell there and the last state of that person is worse than the first so also will it be with this evil generation and that's talking about these unclean spirits these demons that inhabit humans they call them their home and when you read that, you realize it says that they feel displaced and they don't find rest. 
demons find rest when they find someone to inhabit. And that's why I kind of see that as backing up the Nephilim as those who once were flesh, uh, though they were you know, corrupt flesh from the demonic angels, but now they are without rest because they are disembodied and they are trying to find rest back in a human soul. That's why they want to find bodies to dwell in. And though they are cast out or taken out, they move around, try to find a place. If they go back to their home, as they called it, and nothing has occupied it, and, and that person hasn't gotten saved and delivered, and it's just clean, they'll go back and they'll invite seven times worse back in. Now, we'll talk about that as we go further into spiritual warfare. I'll share some experiences where uh, in South Africa um, uh, saw how vital and important it is to recognize when to bring deliverance and when not to. Just put it out there. When someone doesn't want to be delivered, don't deliver them. You'll make it worse for them. All right? Um, So this thing... That's why I think that the demonic, it makes sense that they are the spirit of the Nephilim, the disembodied, unclean spirits that were a combination of the fallen angels and women. Now, uh, if that's too far for you to consa, uh, again, I gave you uh, last week's lesson in Jude and in Peter that talked about that event. Uh, I think it is. Now, let's go on and look at Tartarus we talk about under the earth and that's where those angels were put uh, peter 2 4 and 5 talks about it also we see hades or what is shoal or the grave that's called hell in our english version so in our english version we have three places referenced as hell there are three very different places but in our english translation it all says hell okay One of the places is Tartarus. Now that's only found in Peter and in Revelation as the pit or the abyss where these fallen angels had left their first home and they are locked in chains until that time. That's one reference of hell. It's Tartarus. The second reference of hell is called Sheol or the grave. And that is the holding place until the second reference resurrection basically jesus gives us insight into that place when he tells us about lazarus and the rich man if you remember that story uh, we'll get into it another time but lazarus and the rich man and what we see is a description of sheol where there is an upper compartment for those who are righteous and a lower compartment for those who are unrighteous and there's a great gulf between okay And that upper compartment is called Abraham's bosom. And so those saints of the Old Testament were in the upper part of Sheol, or the grave. And those unrighteous were down in the lower parts of Sheol. Now, they could not, why could they not go right directly to God in the Old Testament? Jesus had not died and brought forth the sacrifice to atone for sin. Therefore, no no person could be in the presence of God. So they were in that holding place of Sheol. Now, what does the Bible tell us that Jesus did after he died? He descended and led captivity captive, Ephesians says, and brought that train to 
that company to the third heavens, which now in 2 Corinthians 12 tells us the third heavens is now called paradise. Formerly located in Shoal, now up there, because you can go there because of the blood of Jesus and trusting in Him. Okay? Now, there's a third reference of hell. Now, you guys got all this, right? The third reference of hell. Today you'll be with me in where? Paradise, right? He went to paradise down in Sheol, and then Jesus took him up to paradise with the Father. Okay? Now, there's a third reference to hell that we see in Scripture, but its Greek word is Gehenna. Gehenna. Okay? Now, Gehenna... I didn't write any of this down. I wasn't planning on going there, but I'm, gonna, I'm there. I'm in hell now, so we might as well uh, figure it out. All right, so Gehenna is interesting because Gehenna is actually a location right on the side of the Temple, temple Mount. It's called the Valley of Hinnom, and it was literally called Gehenna. So when Jesus was doing his teaching on the Lake of Fire, he called it Gehenna. In your Bibles, it's called hell. What's unique about Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom, is in Israel's history, that was the place that Israel actually sacrificed their children to the god Molech. And God said, cursed is this valley that my people would sacrifice their own children to the god of Molech. And he cursed that valley so that it would never produce life. What they then adopted that valley for is that when David set up Zion and put the temple and Solomon built the temple on the Temple Mount, once the sacrifices were burned on the altar of sacrifice, they took the waste, the offal as it's called, they took it and dumped it out the side of the temple over into a valley. Guess what valley? Gehenna. So if you were to look from the Temple Mount down on the Valley of Gehenna, you would see smoldering flesh and maggots and worms down in that cursed valley. And Jesus said, it is better to lose a limb or an arm or an eye and be with the Lord than it is to lose your soul and end up in Gehenna, the lake of fire. The lake of fire is that final eternal punishment place that was made for the devil and his angels. The picture of the valley of Gehenna is only a picture of the reality of that holding tank of hell or the lake of fire where there is sulfur and the gnashing of teeth and the worm never dies. That's why Jesus uses that expression because of what Gehenna was used for. So, there is Tartarus, which is the place for the demonic, the abyss of those who left their first abode. That's reserved to be loosed during the last days. There is Sheol, where the unrighteous go now. But what happened after the the resurrection? Anybody who dies in Jesus doesn't go to Sheol, but to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, the book of Hebrews tells us. 
appointed unto man once to die, then the judgment. And so we, to be absent from the body, we get to be with the Lord. So we immediately go there. So there's Shoal, and anybody who's not in Christ goes there and waits till the day of their resurrection. All right? And that's at the great white throne judgment that will come forth. All right? And uh, then they will be cast into Gehenna, the lake of fire, which right now is not occupied. All right, that was a little bit of a sidetrack. Let's keep going. Let's look at 1 Peter 3.19. Ephesians 4.9 says, He also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. 1 Peter 3.19 says, By whom also he, Jesus, went and preached to the saints in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. So the Bible tells us that Jesus descended into the lower regions of the earth. Okay? And it says he preached. That's a poor translation of the Greek word. The Greek word is he heralded, he proclaimed. He announced who he was. So he descended into the lower parts of the earth, whether that's Shoal or Tartarus or whatever. He descended there and proclaimed who he was. Now, you could fit all this together in the story like this. Is that everybody was in Shoal. The righteous saints were in the upper compartment. The unrighteous were in the lower compartment. When Christ died and said to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise, Christ descended into the lower parts of the earth, whether this is the physical earth or some dimension, I don't know. But he descended. And there he proclaimed who he was. Now think of the reunion. Who was in the upper part of Shoal? The saints. Think of the cast of characters there. Think of Adam and Eve waiting for the seed of the woman who bruised the serpent's head, right? Think of, now think about this for a minute. Who was there just about a year before that to tell everybody he's coming? John the Baptist, right? I saw him. I baptized him. He's on his way. So everybody's getting excited. David's there. Isaiah's there right? Jeremiah's there. All the prophets, I would imagine they're getting together talking about the prophecies they talked about. Oh, he was where? He was born Bethlehem. Micah said, I said that. I said that. That was me. Isaiah says, he's wonderful counselor. And John the Baptist says, that's right. Because when I asked if he was who he said he would be, he healed the sick. Isaiah 61. And Isaiah says, I wrote that. He said, right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to right? To set the captive free and to heal the blind and all this kind of stuff. And and so there's got to be excitement. So when he came, talk about a triumphal entry. Woo, man, that place had to rock. And then he said, let's go up. (laughs) Okay. Now at the same time, he well may have made proclamation to the lower parts because he said he went to those who were before, before Noah. All right? Now, none of them were righteous. It uses the word saints, but none of those before Noah were righteous except for Enoch, although he's, he's translated, uh, uh, and some of the, those who were Seth and the descendants of Adam. 
But he may, may well have proclaimed who he was to all those before that as well. That's awesome, isn't it? That's amazing. Now, all of that happened. Okay, so that's the cosmology of the earth and under the earth and the heavenlies. I liked what uh, Lambert Dolphin said here. The biblical view of the universe is not the modern one of vast reaches of barren space. It is teeming and throbbing with life everywhere. The cosmos is heavily populated with legions and myriads of angelic beings of various ranks and species. Angels are associated with astronomical phenomena throughout the Bible as well as with the activity of weather, windstorms, lightning, and, and in connection with the actions of God and the angels in both blessings and cursing. I like that because the biblical viewpoint now, how many of you, you know, you watch TV, you watch Carl Sagan, you watch all this, and, and we see space, the final frontier, we see all this stuff. But what's happening is there's so much activity. It's not just this vast, empty, silent place, but in the spirit realm, it's teeming with activity and warfare that's going on at all times. We can't see in our mundane lives, we don't see what is actually taking place around us and in people, below the earth, above the earth, and in the heavenly realms. Christ is in control of it all. All right? He made them all. All right, so that's the cosmology of where we live. There's activity going on all the time. And so often we're only concerned with our little world. It's a bigger world out there. All right, so let's shift now into the next phase, but let me, let me just get some discussion. Any questions uh, or comments uh, about this whole setup of the cosmology of the cosmos? Where? Yes. Um, let me, the question was, where do Catholics get the concept of purgatory? Purgatory is based on the concept of purging. It's where we get the word purgatory. It is, a, it is a place of purging. The concept was developed from the book of Maccabees. Okay, does anybody know the book of Maccabees? It's, it's part of those books that are not included uh, in the Old Testament. They're historical books. There were the families of the Maccabees, all right? Genuine history, a great story, tells us the story of Hanukkah and how they fought to win back the temple from uh, the Romans and they, uh, uh, the Maccabee family fought to regain Jewish control of Jerusalem again. In those books, in the book of Maccabees, in those books there's a story where a garrison of soldiers, Jewish soldiers, were murdered or killed in a battle. And so one of the Maccabees, one of the leaders says, let us pray for the souls of those who were slaughtered that they may gain access to God. That's the concept of purgatory. That's where it came from. That concept. Now, the concept is then that, uh, and purgatory came as a Catholic doctrine well after the uh, church fathers had been established. We're talking, I think, in the 900s, 
Uh, it was developed as a concept. The concept is that when you die, you are not clean enough or holy enough to be in the presence of God. You therefore need further purging. Okay? And that's purgatory. And that those who are alive can pray for you that you may come out of purgatory and get cleansed to be in the presence of God. Protestants have a problem with that doctrine because it, the problem is it minimizes the effectiveness of the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus, according to Scripture, as John tells us, cleanses me or purifies me from how much sin? All sin. So the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And so the blood of Jesus is the only merit we have to go to heaven. There is no righteousness of our own that would ever justify our ability to be in the presence of God. We must always fully put our faith in the blood of Jesus. That cleanses us from all unrighteousness and that provides our purging to be in the presence of God. Okay? Well, yes, there, there's a question here on the resurrection, and uh, I'll, I'll do that, but then I want to keep it to spiritual warfare. But the question was, when are the bodies going up? There's two resurrections. The resurrection, resurrection means your body's changed in the twinkling of an eye from mortal to immortal. Those who die, their spirit and soul goes to be with the Lord, but there's coming a day when their body will meet that and be transformed. That's those who are in Christ, that's at the first resurrection. We know according to Scripture, that's at the last trumpet. That's when Christ returns. We meet Him in the air. All right, that's called the rapture or the first resurrection. Okay, that happens at the return of Christ. The second resurrection is for all those who have ever lived that are not cleansed by Christ's sacrifice, who have never accepted Christ. From Adam to the end when Christ returns. They will be resurrected after Christ's thousand-year reign on the earth. Then that's called the second resurrection, the great white throne judgment, and that's when the lake of fire will then be inaugurated. Yeah, you bet. Any other questions? Yes? There, yes, correct. Correct. Judy. It very well could have been, but I'm going to correct that word because he wasn't preaching, he was proclaiming. Because some people think he was giving them an opportunity to be saved and that opportunity is gone. Okay, once death comes, there's no repentance after that. All right, but he could have proclaimed to those fallen spirits who he was. Yes, it could have been those angels, as well as those souls that died in the flood. 
Either or. And that depth, we don't know. Yes, sir. Oh, we're going to get to that weeks later. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mean to put you off, but I mean, we're going to spend time on how to warfare in the heavenlies. All right, so. So why does it say there's only two that left the heavenly control? Only two? I don't know your question. Only two. Okay. Um, one second, Daisy. Yes. No, they're not saying that at all. They're not saying that at all. They are saying you must have Christ, and you must come to know Jesus Christ. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There, purgatory is not for un, purgatory is not for unsaved people. Purgatory is for saved people who know Christ, not unsaved people. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, you can't pray someone out of hell. That's not the Catholic doctrine. The Catholic doctrine is purgatory is for believers who need further purging. But they're still saying you must accept Christ, most definitely. Oh, most definitely. Yes, yeah. Purgatory is not a second chance to accept Christ. No, not at all. It's not that. It, you get no second chance. Once you die, it's appointed unto men. Once to die, then judgment. Okay. So, But purgatory is it's still the biblical belief that you must accept Christ as your Savior. All right? But it is a purging that there may have been sin in your life you didn't repent of well enough. So then you need to be purged further. Okay? That's the basic doctrine, Daisy. You need a perfect uh, uh, explanation of purgatory. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, uh, but I have to add something. How can I, myself, yes. how can I explain? Some people are bad from A to Z and they go to heaven. Some people are sad and suffer a lot, go to heaven. Is it just that the two have the same The reason anybody can go to heaven is because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They may have suffered on this earth. They may have had an easy life. They may have struggled with particular sin, as most do. And some have been more victorious than others over their sin. But equally... All will go to heaven because of the blood of Jesus. And if I could say, there's a wonderful parable that Jesus teaches to explain this. He says there was a man who hired workers at 8 in the morning. They worked all day. There was a man that they hired at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. There was a man he hired an hour before quitting time. And he paid them all the same. And, And they complained and said, how can this be? And they said, this is because of the benevolence or the goodness of the master. It's his choice to do that. Yeah. I saw another hand back here. Yes, sir. Yes. Those who died after Noah, if they were righteous, following after Jehovah, they went to the upper part of Sheol. If they're unrighteous, they're in the lower parts of Sheol which is 
in total called hell or the grave. Yes, he descended. He took those who were in the upper part and led them into the presence of God because of his sacrifice. And he, it says, proclaimed to those souls before Noah who he was. So he made an appearance there. Now, he did not have to get any keys from the devil. He did not have to get any keys from the devil. How many of you heard that? Jesus had to go down to hell and take the keys. He didn't have to take any keys. The devil didn't own any keys. Jesus didn't die for the devil. Jesus died to take the wrath of God's judgment on sin upon himself. Had nothing to do with the devil. But by doing that, I'll get to that in a minute. All right, let me get to that in a minute. Anybody else? Yes, Daisy, one more. This question, nobody, nobody, since years I ask this, nobody can give an answer. All right, let me give a try. demon brought the bug. God never created uh, anything bug, okay? Yes. So from where they got the fallen angels, from where they got to be bad? Where did they get to be bad? The, the key is within Satan's heart. He, uh, the question was, where did evil come from? Which is a, a classic question. Because if God made all things and evil exists, did God make evil? Ultimately, God made all things. Right. Well, the Bible tells us uh, that Satan was perfect in all his ways. Okay, we read that last week. But something happened within Satan's heart, and God calls it pride. The, the, the whole rebellion came, evil came, when Satan became self-enamored, self-identified apart from his identity in God. That's, the, that's where all evil comes from. Yes, when self... He is not independent of God's power and authority, but in himself he became independent in who he was. Right. Why did he save those eight people? We, it, I don't know if you were here last week, but the explanation is this, that he was not tainted in his DNA with the fallen man, with the fallen angels. It was Noah who, and the, the word used in Hebrew was that he was uh, perfect in God's sight, which means without blemish, which is the same word used for the sacrifices before God. So what we believe is, see, that's why it doesn't make sense for a flood to come and destroy the human race with sin, because Noah had sin. We know that after he got saved and got drunk and we got a whole nother problem. So it wasn't because of sin, and that just validates the, the argument further, that Genesis 6 uniquely had something going on that caused God to save Noah, who had not cohabitated, with any of these fallen demons, nor his family. They were the only ones clean 
to carry on the true DNA of the human race. Okay? You getting there? All right, one more, and then we're going to move on. we got some more to go. Because there was no sacrifice for sin. Okay, I mean, there's only one sacrifice for sin. There are animal sacrifices, but the blood of blood and uh, bulls you are not pleased with. Hebrews uh, 10. Okay, therefore you have prepared a body for me, and I go. It is written of me in the book. So there was no cleansing of sin uh, that finished sin other than the blood of Jesus. So they could not dwell in that presence. That's why I personally believe Enoch, it says he walked with God and was translated. I, I don't think he was in the presence of God. I think he was in Sheol, in the righteous paradise there. Because again, there's no, there's no atonement for sin. Okay? Alright, let's, let's go on. Talking about atonement for sin, let's continue. Salvation of man. Colossians 2.14 Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that were against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Let's take that verse apart. Okay. Now, what's the handwriting of requirements that's written against us and that got nailed to the cross? The law. All right? We are all fallen. Mankind's fallen. The wages of sin is death. God gave the law to identify sin. That law condemns us. That's why Paul calls it the law of sin and death. Because all the law can do is condemn mankind. So when Christ died, He came to do what? Fulfill the law. Born outside of Adam. Oh, how how was he born outside of Adam? The virgin birth. Thank you. (laughs) The virgin birth. Therefore, he did not have the curse of Adam upon him. That's the essential point of the virgin birth. Do you know how many churches have given up the virgin birth? If you give up the virgin birth, you give up the sinlessness of Christ, you give up a perfect sacrifice, and you forfeit salvation. So, we can't give up the virgin birth. So, he was born of a woman from the seed of God. So, he was outside of the curse of Adam, and he lived a perfect life, perfect to the law, loving the Lord God with all his heart, mind, soul, and body, and his neighbors as himself. He lived it to perfection. Therefore, he could be the perfect sacrifice on the cross. I keep doing this. I have all these cool slides I worked on all day for. Okay. And then, as he hung on the cross, he nailed the law that was against us to the cross. Actually, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, He embodied the law. He's the law. Perfected. The perfection of God. So what got nailed to the cross was the law is Jesus. The perfection of God. By doing that, He made an open show. What does that mean, an open show? A display for everyone to see. It's done. It's finished. He cried it out. Why does that disarm Satan and all the demons? 
How does it disarm them? Think about it. Power over death, but why? Why? You're right on. Why death? Well, how, do we, how do we die? Because of what? And how do we identify sin? The law. So if the law is finished and complete, what does the devil have to condemn us with? Nothing. Exactly. You get it? Because he nailed the law to the tree. And because Jesus fulfilled the law, perfected it, and here's the completion of perfecting it. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. That in perfecting it, he died. There must be a sacrifice for sin. He died for all our sins. He completed the law, therefore disarming the powers of Satan and all their principalities from condemning us to hell. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? Revelation 12. He stands before the throne of God doing what? Accusing. What does he use to accuse? The law of God. He uses God's own law. Can't argue with God's law. He's smart. He's a lawyer. The devil's a lawyer. And when we get into the areas of deliverance and working in praying against the devil, you need to take law. And you need to learn how a lawyer fights. Because every demon you fight against will go to the, every jot and tittle of the law. So you fight against them with the law. He completed it. He broke the power of his ability to accuse. And so now, we are no longer accused by the devil. Some of you don't know that, and you still let the devil accuse you. And you need to tell him, buzz off. No way. You cannot accuse me of that because of the blood of Jesus. Right? Now, he may be right in accusing you of a particular sin, but you have an advocate to go to and say, Jesus, forgive me, cleanse me. And you tell the devil to take a hike. Okay? Now, let's go on. 1 Peter 1.12 To them, the prophets, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. What he's saying is this. Peter's saying that the prophets of the Old Testament were prophesying about the times when the Messiah would come. They were looking into their own writings. They didn't even understand it, right? Isaiah would say he's going to be the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, uh, and the Mighty God. And then later on he writes, and he will suffer the suffering servant, and he will be rejected by men and, the, and rejected by God. It's like, what? I, I don't get it, right? And so they're, try, they're even searching their own writings trying to understand. Daniel searched the writings of Jeremiah and figured out, oh, 70 weeks and we're out of Babylon. See, they searched their own writings. They're trying to find Messiah. And it says they wrote all of it for you and I. Remember why they wrote all of it? We, We discussed this before. They were writing all of it because it was all of God's promises that He was putting into our inheritance through the prophets so that once Christ died, every promise God ever made is now yes to us and we inherit them. Okay, so, but I I like this verse because I like the very last line. They're searching and trying to find this great salvation, and it's things that the angels what? 
desire to look into. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They didn't know it was coming. Isn't that interesting? Turn your page over. 1 Corinthians 2.7 But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If the devil only knew what he was doing. It's, it's, it's the best cosmic gotcha ever. It's genius. And God hid it. He hid it from his prophets. He hid it from the angels. He hid it from everyone until it happened. And it's revealed for us. It's revealed for us. We got to understand who we are in the scheme of human history. We have got to wake up and shake off the doldrums and understand who we are in the history of the age of man. We're the church, the called out ones, that God is now telling us to bring his kingdom to bear throughout all of planet earth. Amen? And so we must go forward with it. Look at Ephesians 3.9. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ Jesus, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're supposed to be revealing this wisdom and hidden mystery that God had in himself that Messiah would come in the flesh and deliver mankind from sin, breaking the power of Satan and his forces. We're supposed to be living that, and by doing that, we are teaching the angels and principalities all about the love of God. It is. It is. We're to be teaching. You see, they only know what God has revealed to them. They don't know this love that we have from God. They know the love of God, but there is something so individually blessed between God and us that He meets you in your need. And as we live out our expression of love, the angels see this and watch in awe of what God did for mankind. So much so, that it says in Luke that the angels rejoice when someone gets saved because they're in awe of God's plan again. There it is again. There it is again. It's awesome and wondrous. All right, we'll stop there for just a second, a minute, before we get into spiritual battle, and let's talk about that part of it, the salvation and being demonstrated to the angels. Any questions on that? Exactly right. Exactly right. All of the earth is condemned already because of the fall. 
Uh, John 3.17 is a very motivating verse. We know 3.16, don't we? But John 3.17 says that man is condemned already. So this is the reason we have to go out. I can't get over the fact, why are you saved? Why am I saved? Why am I saved? Why you and not all these other people? With that, we have to be utterly so grateful and do something about this, right? All right, no other questions. Let's go on then. Okay. Oh, my glass is upside down. There we go. So let's look at the battlefield now. So, there's a war going on, right? Now, the agents of salvation are us in the earth. Satan's been defeated as to his ability to condemn man with the law, but he can still keep men in bondage to their own flesh and sin and keep them blind so that they don't see the light of the glorious gospel, Paul says. That the people of this earth are blinded by the God of this age from the light of the glorious gospel. We're the light bearers. We've got to bring this light to them. When you witness, pray, Father, remove the blinders from their eyes. Do spiritual warfare. Evangelism is spiritual warfare. All right? You've got to realize this. It's not just gee, I hope I could leave a track or I could say something. You've got to understand when you're witnessing for Jesus, you are fighting against the hordes of hell. You are fighting against Satan who has blinded the eyes of the people you're talking to. This is war. Spiritual warfare. So when you talk to someone even a little bit, pray that God's message will get through. Amen? All right. Now, here's the devil's strategies. And the first thing he does is this. He brings temptation. He's a tempter. He tempted Eve, right? First thing he did, tempted. He brings temptation. But let's qualify what the devil can and cannot do. He can tempt, but he can't make you sin. How many of you remember Flip Wilson? All right, this is dating some of you. But he used to always say, the devil made me do it as an excuse. A lot of people say that devil made me do it a lot of people think well i'll just go get delivered and i'm okay now we know some church leaders that did that after they had sinned a lot went to some deliverance services and now they're fine don't take my credentials away uh but uh so let's not abuse it here's the bottom line he can tempt but james tells us exactly why he tempts james 1 14 each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed then when desire has conceived it gives birth to sin and sin when it's full grown brings forth death the devil knows this what the devil wants to do is get you to sin because what does sin do sin brings the weight of death okay death upon it now So what he knows is that man is fallen, so he tempts man and entices man. First John tells us in three different ways, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Looks good, right? I think it's going to taste good and make me feel good, and I'll be great because of it. Any one of those three, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, he entices, he's a tempter. 
He's a liar and he, intem- he entices. But who ultimately chooses to sin? We do. By the power of our flesh, he says. We desire it, okay? So I know that there are addictions that are very, very strong that bring people in. The reason they got addicted was because of the lust of the flesh. And the flesh then desires it more and more. Now, we'll get into this deeper when we talk about deliverance, but there's an aspect where you can be tempted and by your own flesh you enter into sin, but if you continue to repeat that sin habitually, you're opening a door for demonization to lock it in. Okay? And we'll talk about that later. All right, so the devil tempts. So that's why God calls us to renew our minds, to overcome the power of the flesh, and to walk in the love and joy and the fruit of God's Spirit so that we don't want this other stuff. And we can overcome the temptations of the devil. If you are able to break the power of your flesh, the devil has nothing to tempt you with. So we must stay on guard. Okay. Now, let's go on. The second thing he does is demonization. That's where uh, through abuse, through trauma, through different aspects, we're going to go into this much deeper, the devil can traumatize someone, can get someone to such a place, especially an unbeliever, to where he demonizes them and takes up residence. Okay? And we'll get into all the discussion on can a Christian be demonized and all those different questions that's coming but we need to go step by step along the way so the second part of what he does is demonize so you've got consider this in the heavenly realms and in the earthly realms you have fallen angels which are moving enticing and tempting right and in the earth realm you have demons who are trying to find a place to live and trying to move into someone in someone's woundedness and brokenness so that they can take up habitation. The third aspect of what the devil's trying to do in this battle is on a major level of conspiracy, a global agenda. He is trying to definitely coerce mankind against God and to rebel against the Lord. I was going to say, how's he doing? Quite well. We know in Corinthians it says that we have uh, uh, weapons of our warfare are not carnal, pulling down strongholds in every pretension. Pretense. That's uh, another word for pretense is ideologies. This is how the devil uh, gets large groups of people through ideologies and pretensions. One great one is the theory of evolution communism okay so these are pretenses that have literally held captive nations right witch doctors and voodoo occult and sorcery those are concepts pretenses ideologies isms that in fact enslave entire nations and countries and so there's a global work at a global strategy of those demons, uh, uh, those fallen angels around the earth, 
working to propagate this activity as well as demons trying to personally wound people's lives. So you've got an overt world domination and a particular individual domination from the demonic. It's a heck of a war going on, right? And you escaped it because Christ found you. We do. Let's go on to them right here. The ministry of angels. Yes. Yeah, I, I, basically he wants to spoil anything he can. And so that would be it, definitely. He wants to rob you of all that you can become in Christ, all of your potential, and, and to rob you from the, that, that great potential. But let's also understand something, that God even uses the devil to make us better. Now that's wild, but he even allows sometimes the devil to do his work. Job is a classic example. So that Job would be refined in a greater level of purity and, and understanding of who he is in God. So even though the devil messes with us, God can still use anything he throws at us to perfect us for his glory. Uh, I think it's more like this. I think that if he can immobilize the army that is bringing salvation to the earth and make them ineffective and void of their power, then he can accomplish greater things in the earth. He just needs to spoil us enough to be inactive. That's all he needs to do. All right, That's really all he needs to do. How's he doing with that? How do he do with that in America? Okay, we have a large population of Christians in America and the church is basically ineffective here. Well, this is where there's a big theological debate as whether you can lose your salvation or not. I preach the security of the believer the only way someone can lose their salvation is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You can't lose your salvation by sinning. And that's a whole nother discussion. Because our salvation wasn't gained by not sinning. Our salvation was gained by faith in Jesus Christ. An apostate. And again, we can get into that in a long debate on that. Okay? Yeah. All right, and the reprobate is in terms of those who were not saved. He turned over mankind. The reprobate mind is those who, who had a knowledge of God in, in creation and earth who didn't even accept Christ. They turned him over to a reprobate mind. Uh, they weren't saved people, if you look at the context of that. All right, let's go on, because we got to get to the good stuff. Uh, you know, don't stop here at the devil. The ministry of angels, Hebrews 1.14. Now, we heard the comment that two-thirds of the angels did not fall. Right? 
So we have two-thirds of the angels working in the heavenly realm and on the earth realm, and we're worried about demon spirits getting into people. What spirit do we have in us? The Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God Himself. Greater is He that's in me than he that's in the world. All right? So let's go on. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So what he's saying is this. Angels are ministering spirits to every believer. They're here to minister to you. Look up in the Scriptures and the Gospels as how they ministered to Jesus. And that's what they're doing for you. They're ministering to you, ministering and saving. And there's so many times in our lives and in our daily walk, we don't even recognize or know those who have been ministering and helping us. So we are always trying to be aware of some demon that's attacking us. We need to pay attention that we've got angels round about us, preserving us, helping us. I love what uh, Paul says here in Hebrews 13.2, Don't forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittedly entertained angels. What he's saying is the activity of angels is so active and busy, hey, that treat everybody good because you never know when it's actually an angel that you're with. <clears throat> angels don't always show up with wings. But they, if you, again, you look at the Old Testament, remember when they came to Abraham? They came, they ate, they had food. He had Sarah make some food. Let's sit down, let's talk, let's eat together. Right? And they just show up. So you don't know how many angels you've bumped up into today. They're ministering in your life. All right, Psalm 91.11. Read Psalm 91. It's a warfare psalm. It's powerful. Psalm 91.11. For He shall give His angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. All right? In what way? All. All your ways. There's the ministry active round about us of ministering spirits. Matthew 18.10. Little ones who believe are said to have their angels who behold the face of God in heaven. Jesus is talking about the children. Uh, by the way, in Jesus' society, society at that time, <laughs> uh, little kids were not appreciated. They weren't doted on like they are today. They were, in fact, often said, get out of here, get out of the way. You had men, then you had women you know, who were a couple feet back, and then you had kids. It was like, get out of here. Jesus points out the weakest and lowest standing member of society and says they got angels who behold the face of God. And so that would mean we have angels. And then he goes on, look at the book of Acts and all the angel activity. Everybody says we want to return to the book of Acts. Well, let's do it. Let's see how much angel activity is going on round about us. Can you imagine the angel activity going on tonight in this room? where the saints have collected together, where we're studying God's Word, we're seeking the Lord, we're praying, when we worship together and we're praising God. Do you know what's happening in the angelic realm and the ministry that's going on here? When you're struggling, when you're weary, when you're weak, when you're down, not only does God by His Holy Spirit minister and pray in you, but there are ministering angels upholding you and ministering to you let alone the body of Christ who should also be doing this as well. Luke 15.10 Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
Let's bring it on home now and conclude with this warfare story of the believer's authority. Yeah, the devil has a lot of activity going on. He's got a lot of forces, but we've got more. We've got more. And it's up to us to do warfare against the devil and to stop what he's been doing and perpetrating on people's lives. And this story in Luke 10 tells us of that power and authority that was looking forward to the church. It was looking forward to what every believer has potential to do. And it's this. There were 70 disciples that Jesus sent into the city and he gave them authority over the demons and sickness and he sent them out. And they went out and ministered and when they came, they returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall be by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. This is looking forward to what he was going to accomplish. The greatest thing to rejoice over for us and the angels is our salvation. It was a mystery hidden in God, revealed for all to see. The angels are blown away by this thing. They love it. It's the greatest thing to rejoice over, our salvation. With that salvation, knowing it's freely given, now let's go. Because all authority and power has been given unto me in heaven and earth and below the earth. Now therefore go. This is a story of that power. And he says, nothing shall hurt you. Go and do this. Now, when he says hurt you, ultimately he means separate you from me. Nothing can take you out of my hands. You cannot be plucked from my hand. All right? We will die. And there are many Christians who have given their lives. We say, oh, I thought nothing was going to hurt them. He's not talking about physical death. Physical death doesn't hurt the Christian. Oh, it may be painful. I'm not denying pain, but ultimately when I say hurt, I'm not talking about pain. I'm talking about the ultimate pain and hurt of being separated from God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. Now here's the story. They go out and they begin casting demons out of people. They begin healing the sick. Demons flee. People are healed. This is awesome. They come back rejoicing. Now how do you think they came back rejoicing? Come on. They come back to Jesus and they go, oh, by the way, those demons we prayed for, they're gone. It was awesome. I think they were excited. I think it says they shouted, they were singing, they were pretty exuberant, really excited about what was going on. And what I love is Jesus' response. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In the cosmology we studied, what happened? They went into the villages and were casting out the demonic spirits. As they were casting out the demonic spirits, what was happening to the principalities and powers that were in the heavenlies over that?